If you will, take your Bibles and turn to James chapter 2. Or if you have the bulletin, it's in the back of the bulletin. Our time of teaching is going to be taken from James chapter 2, verse 14, down through verse 26. Hear now the word of the Lord. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, it does, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. Well, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Ponder on that verse for a moment. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. All flesh is as grass and the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower fades But the word of the Lord shall endure forever. And this is the word that will be taught unto you. Amen. Let's go before our Lord in prayer. Father, oh, Father, you are so good to us. Have mercy on us, your people. Give us the power of your spirit that we might hear your word, but also do your word. Oh, Father, please. Make us to see your glory, even today. Help us to hear clearly and distinctly from you that we might love our children, our spouse, our neighbors, our friends, our family, that we might just love well. Because that is what you have called us to do, to love you with all of our heart, mind, and soul. And then love our neighbors as ourselves. Would you not bless us now, O Lord? We need you. Amen and amen. Well, um, this portion of James 
is a very difficult portion of scripture, okay? I can't tell you how much uh, commentaries or uh, articles or position papers I've read over the years on this passage, right? They're numerous. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give us two important bits of information that are like hinges that kind of open up this passage for us and help us to understand, right? And the first is this. Here's the first hinge, if you will. The first hinge is this. James is not talking about how you can be saved. That's not what he's saying. He's saying how can you know you're saved? He's talking about assurance. He's not talk, talking about justification by faith. He's talking about assurance. In fact, look at verse number 14 of James chapter 2. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? In other words, he's saying if somebody has the mistaken belief that they can be a Christian, but they can't serve the poor. They, they use anger to work the righteousness of God. If they, if they believe that they can show partiality to other people, right, and not be impartial, if, if they believe that they can just profess faith and not care for the poor and the needy and the widows and the fatherless, then James is saying, then you don't have a faith. So he's not telling them how to be saved. He's telling them specifically how you know you're saved. How do you know your faith is secure and true? That's the first thing. The second thing is this. Both faith and works are necessary for the Christian life. They're necessary for the Christian life. They work together. Notice with me again in verse number 18. James says this. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Apparently, there were people in James's church who were saying, I have good theology. I don't need to serve the poor. I don't need to help the widows and the fatherless. I'm good. And then there was another faction who said, you know what? We don't need good theology. We serve the poor. We help people and, and we serve the widows. So we don't need to study theology and understand what it means. So James says, you know what? Both of those are incorrect. We need both. And notice the jarring illustration he uses to prove this point. Notice with me in verse number 26. He says, look, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also uh, faith apart from works is dead. Hear me today. Everyone that was reading that text remembered how life happened. Genesis 1, right? Genesis 1 and 2. God took Adam and formed his body and breathed into his nostril the breath of life. And man became a living what? A living soul. So life happens with a body and a spirit. So what is death? Death is the separation of the body and the spirit. And James is saying, look, our faith needs to have both a secure understanding of who Jesus is, faith, 
but he also needs to have, we also need to have works. Both go together. They're not separated. Now, you might say, Pastor Dennis, that sounds like just highfalutin theology. No. Well, yes. It is kind of uh, theology, but also, hear me today, this works out practically in our life. Because faith without works leads to dead orthodoxy. It leads to lifeless Christianity. It eventually will lead to apostasy. Because as Jacques Solol, the famous French philosopher, says, if you and I are not living out our faith, it communicates something about our faith. And eventually, if you are not doing the things that God has called you to do, eventually you will reject your faith because your faith to you will become dead. But hear me today, if faith without works is dead, works without faith is dead as well. Because people who only have works and don't have faith, don't have a firm trust and belief in Jesus, they end up becoming burdened. Their, faith, their works end up becoming a source of derision. Their works end up becoming something that they begin to disdain. Why? Because it's not grounded by faith. And so James in this passage is telling us up front, we need faith and we need works. And by the way, Paul actually agrees with him. Because in Ephesians 2, 8, 9 and 10, what does Paul say? For by grace are you saved through faith. It is a gift from God. What is the gift? The grace and the faith are gifts. They come from God. They are ordained by God. And so you and I come into faith by God's grace. And both of those things are a gift. But not only are those things a gift... Uh, Paul goes on and says something else is a gift. Verse number 10. So he says, For by grace you are saved through faith. This is a gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus under good works. For God has ordained beforehand that we should walk in them. What is Paul saying? That the grace and faith, that's a gift from God. But God has also prepared works for us to do. Works such as feeding the poor. Works such as ministering to the widows and the fatherless. Works such as helping those in need. These are things already preordained by God for us to do. In the same way our salvation was preordained by God for us to have. And so this is the message that James has for us embedded in here. And so James' ultimate concern is this. Do you have a living faith? Or do you have dead orthodoxy? Because it matters. It matters. Now the rest of this passage, in brief, is James outlining that very thing. Answering that very question. And so James uses four illustrations. The first two illustrations talk about what happens if, of, of, of how dead faith looks like. And then the other two illustrations talk about what a living faith looks like. And by the way, I wish I had like an hour, which I don't, and relax. I'll be done in like 15 minutes, right? 
But I wish I had an hour to go through these couplets so you can see the beauty of each and every one of these illustrations and what James is saying. We don't have that time. If you're looking for a Bible study, right, I highly recommend you do it. Like, just take a Monday or Tuesday and look at these couplets and see what James is saying. We can't do all of it, so I'm just going to point out a few. So let's look at this. Look, let's look at what James is doing. Remember, James wants us to have a vibrant faith, a lively faith. Nobody wants to have a dead faith. Nobody. That doesn't make any sense. Why are you believing something that's dead, that has no value to you? Of course we want a living faith. That's what James is talking about here. So the first thing James does is James talk about, talks about what does dead faith look like? What does dead faith look like? Notice with me in verse 14 through 19. James gives two illustrations of dead's faith. One from the devout and one from the devil. And if you were reading this in James's day, you would be absolutely scandalized that James is comparing the devout, the people who say they're devout, the people in our church, with a devil, I mean, that that is absolutely scandalous. But this is what James does here. First of all, let's look at the devout. The devout are people who believe. They say they believe. They have right doctrine. And notice what they say. James says, look, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. The picture here is this. Imagine someone in our church that comes to us and they said, hey, we're we're destitute. We've lost our job. We need food and water. Can you help us? And we say, oh, brother, bless the Lord. We offer, we offer you thanks from God, and we praise God for this opportunity of trial in your life. And so go now and be blessed and see how the Lord will provide for you. Is that loving? Of course it's not loving. In fact, James is alluding to the fact that that's actually hypocritical. Because if you're saying and giving a blessing... But at the same time, you do not work to provide for the need of that person. James is saying you're being hypocritical. You don't understand your faith because faith apart from works is no faith at all. James is charging them with hypocrisy here. Now think with me. Who in the Bible do we know to be the chief of the hypocrites? Hmm? Of course the Pharisees. And even now, even in their day, the Pharisees would have been seen as the highest level of hypocrisy in, uh, in that area. And what's interesting to me is that James's older brother, we know him as Jesus, addressed the same issue with the Pharisees. Notice what Jesus says here in Matthew 23, 23 through 24, in the seven woes against the Pharisees. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tied mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, 
What are the weightier matters of the law? Jesus tells them justice and mercy and faithfulness. That's the weightier matter of the law. Not your expression of, uh, and your expression of piety. That's not the weightier matters of the law. The weightier matters of the law are justice and mercy and faithfulness. He says, these you ought to have done without neglecting the other. So in other words, Jesus is saying, please keep your expression of faith. Keep, keep your understanding of the law, but at the same time, make sure you have works attached to that. And notice what Jesus says after that. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Jesus is a master, <clears throat> an absolute master at defining and explaining what they were doing. And by the way, the devout is doing that as well. In the ancient Near East, and, and this was a practice among the Pharisees, but also among all of us. If we wanted wine, we would strain that wine multiple times to get out all impurities so we could just drink it. Right? Because we don't want any, any impurities in that. So we'll take our time for, for maybe a few days continuously straining out that wine so we can have pure wine to drink and not drink any impurities. But yet Jesus says... In an effort to do that, they're drinking a camel, which was the largest animal in that day. And here's what Jesus is saying. It's so, oh man, I, I wish, I wish this could like, I wish this could plant deep in our hearts because what Jesus is saying is just so true of us now. Think of the effort and time we spend building aspects of our Christianity, building aspects of our faith that are absolutely not needful or important to living out our faith. Jesus is telling the Pharisees, look, you spend time on the parts of the law that are important, but they're not the weightiest matter. You spend time, uh, you know, tithing cumin and dill. You spend time worrying if people are praying every day. And the strands on your phylactery, if they're long enough, but you're missing the most important thing, which is caring for the poor. And even in our churches, this is sometimes can be an indictment on us. Are we pursuing ministry towards the poor? Are we prioritizing the needs of the poor? Because that is the weightier matters of the law. And in this illustration, what is Jesus saying to them? They're giving all these religious platitudes, but they're missing the most important thing. More than their expression of blessing on these people, they needed to stand up and provide for their needs. Provide for their needs. Now, uh, John tells us in 1 John chapter 3, Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. That's our calling. To not just offer empty platitudes, but to pursue ministry and love toward others. Now, that's the devout. Notice what he says about the devil, right? How, so the devout has faith, right, but no works. The devil is the opposite. He actually has a faith, and, he, and that faith actually does something. Notice what he says. He says, but some of you will say, you have faith and I have works. This is verse number 18. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. 
even the demons believe and shudder. I mean, this verse blew me away when I thought about it. This is so cool. Think, think for a moment. Think for a moment. What does the phrase God is one mean? Where did that come from? Well, it came from Deuteronomy chapter 4, the Shema. The, the word, therefore, Shema or hear are it's the exact same words. And here's what James is saying. James is saying, you actually believe Orthodox Christianity, that God is one. You all say it at least three times a day. That informs your world and life view. Because if God is one and he has called you to obedience to him, then you live that out in the gospel. You believe that. But here it is, you believe that God is one, but it doesn't show itself in action. And he says, by contrast, the devil actually believes that God is one. The devil has sound theology. But he has a work too, and that work is that he shudders. The, the notion that God is one, James is saying, doesn't move you to action. It doesn't cause you to love your neighbor. You, you're motionless and lifeless with respect to whether or not God is one. Don't you even realize that the devil, he has action. He shudders. Philo, the ancient Greek historian, says that whole concept of shuddering, that word for shuddering, has the idea of being terrified of judgment. In other words, the devil knows that God is real. He knows that God exists. And his response to that is shuddering. His response to that is fear. We should be different. When we think about what God has done for us and who God is, we shouldn't respond in fear. We should respond in love and in the desire to do what God has called us to do. And that's James's point here. Even the devil has a reaction to the glory and majesty of God. How much more should we as God's people? So those are the examples of a dead faith. A dead faith is a faith where we just give platitudes and do nothing. A dead faith is a faith in which we just believe the right thing, but we don't live it out in our daily life. But notice James now moves and talks about living faith. Living faith. What does living faith look like? Well, notice verse 20 through 25. Now, in verse 20 through 25, he gives two examples of living faith. And what are they? The two examples is one of the patriarch and the other as a prostitute. Those are the examples of living faith. And again, if you were reading this, you would be absolutely scandalized in James' day. Because he's comparing the great patriarch Abraham with the prostitute um, Rahab. But keep in mind, both of them... Both of them were pagans. And both of them are non-Jews. I remember talking to um, a person who was Jewish, and he said, you know, Abraham was Jewish. And I said, Abraham wasn't Jewish. And I thought he was going to jump over the table and snatch me up. He's like, what are you talking about? Abraham is Jewish. I was like, no, he wasn't. He was a pagan. The Jewish nation didn't start until Jacob and after and he just paused, right? See, what is so astounding about this illustration that James is giving of living faith is this. 
that this is happening apart from the works of the law. The works of the law do not govern the faith that's being exercised by the patriarch Abraham and the prostitute. Now, if we look at verse number 24, and we'll get, we'll circle back to the differences between um, Abraham and Rahab. But notice verse number 24. Someone will read verse 24. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And they say, aha, pastor. There you have it. The Bible says that we are justified by works and not faith alone. There's a problem because Paul in Romans 4 and Galatians 2.3 clearly says that we are justified by faith alone. And here's James saying we are justified by works. There's a contradiction. We should all close our Bibles and go home. There's nothing left of our faith. Of course, that's not what's happening here. What's happening here is that James and Paul are looking at justification or the word justify from two different perspectives. When I was younger, I was in like middle school. You all call it middle school. We called it junior school where I, where I grew up. Um, we used the word cool for everything, right? We used the word cool to describe how somebody looks. We learned the, uh, the cool. We said cool to describe the weather. We, we said cool to describe um, what we believe about something. Like cool was like the, the ultimate word, right? The ultimate word. That's what, that's what cool was. Now imagine, imagine for a moment if one person in our clan, every time they heard the word cool, thought we were talking about the weather. And they didn't understand the context in which we were using the word. Wouldn't that be confusing? Absolutely it would. Because if it's 100 degrees outside and somebody asks me a question and I say, I'm cool with that, they're going to think, what is Dennis talking about? It's, it's hot. No, they, they, they need to understand that cool in that context means I'm fine with that. The same thing is true here. In Galatians 4, sorry, in Galatians 2 and 3 and Romans 4, Paul is talking about justify or justification in its legal context, meaning to be saved, to be saved by faith. That's the context what he's talking about here. But James is using the word justify to mean something completely different. He's using it to say faith that uh, works that proves our faith. Not works that justify us, but works that prove our faith. That's what he's talking about here. And by the way, both illustrations prove that. Look at the illustration of Abraham in verse number 21. He says, in terms of justify, justification by works, he says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? That illustration is taken from Genesis chapter 22. Right? When was Abraham justified? Genesis 15. That's the covenant made with God. When God put him asleep and he walked through um, the chopped up pieces of, of meat and God says, may the same thing happen to me, right? That's Abraham's justification, Genesis 15. But when James is talking about being justified or your, or your works proving your faith, he uses an example from Genesis 22. 
This is so critical to understand because people come to this passage and say, oh, we're saved by works. No, we're not. Even the illustrations that he gave are illustrations that show uh, works um, proving faith, not works producing faith. Abraham was already saved. He already came to know God prior to being asked to sacrifice his son. You may say, Pastor, I don't know about that. Okay. Well, look at the next illustration he gave in, of Rahab. Rahab received the messengers and sent them by another way. Let me ask you a question. When was Rahab saved? Obviously, Rahab was saved before she helped the spies. Because when the spies came to her, what did she say to them? She said, oh, I've heard of your God and I believe and trust that your God will uh, take over and deliver his people. So clearly, both Abraham and Rahab were saved prior to proving their faith. That's what the word of God clearly shows us. Now, I want to say this in closing. When we come to this passage and we hear James saying that faith without works is dead, there are many of us inside here, immediately we are filled with feelings of, of burden. Because you might say, Pastor, yeah, I have a busy schedule. I, I have young children. I, my life with work and job, all of that is so taxing. When do I have time to feed the poor? When do I have time to help others? It seems like I go from one thing to another. I feel this weight that I should be doing more. Here's what I have to say to you. Don't respond to this sermon in fear. Don't respond to this sermon with guilt and anxiety. Because remember, that's how the devil responds to truth. That's how the devil responds to um, the understanding of God's word. That's not how Christians are supposed to respond. As believers, we respond as Paul did in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 when he says, the love of Christ constrains me. In other words, when we think about what God has done for us, we don't respond to that with fear or anxiety. We respond to that with love. This constraining love that motivates us to serve others. Beloved, this is not a sermon that's designed to guilt your conscience. Far from it. This is a sermon to, to, for you to see the glory of God, the majesty of God, and then that compels you to go out and to serve others like Jesus did. Jesus didn't go to the cross because he was afraid. He didn't go to the cross out of anxiety that God was going to get him if he don't. No, he went there out of love. Look at your bulletin. Look at, look at Hebrews chapter 12. These people who were sawn, sawn in half, the, the women that were abused, the people that were taken advantage of. Do you think they did all of that out of fear? Do you think when people are being martyred, they're doing it out of fear or anxiety or concern? No, absolutely not. They're doing it out of love. Love for the Savior. 
And when we talk about faith and works, we're not talking about compulsion. We're talking about a faith that understands what Christ has done for us, and we passionately seek to do the same thing for others. If we've been transformed by the gospel, that should drive us out to transform and to see other lives transformed by the gospel. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Father, far from causing your people to shudder, far from causing your people to be burdened by the weight of loving you and serving you in this world, Lord, my prayer is that we might get a vision for you and be empowered, Holy Spirit, to pursue works out of love, not out of fear or anxiety, but just out of love because we have been loved by you. Your grace and your mercy has been poured out to us that when we were poor, when we had nothing, when we were destitute, you pursued us. And now your call is that we do the same for others. We pay it forward as it were. Help us as your people to heed the call of James and do so. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Please stand for a final song.